This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 149th edition of the program, and today is June 28th, and this episode is brought to you by our latest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes Ariel Hazan, Philip A. November, S.A. Black, S.S., Tom Kaner, Xavier Zervisco, and Young Kang. Thanks so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. On today's episode, we've got quite the show for you. Trump is finally talking about reuniting families he separated at the border. But there's a catch. Now, additionally, Trump officials do a 180 on how much autonomy they think private business owners should have. Now, this sudden change of heart comes after Sarah Huckabee Sanders was kicked out of a restaurant. Democratic Party leaders are chastising members of the party that criticized Donald Trump, but giving a pass to members like Joe Manchin, who's actually helping Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders dodged a question on whether or not we should abolish ICE, but he also debunked Trump's fear-mongering with regard to immigration, so we'll talk about what he had to say this week. And additionally, Elizabeth Warren shares what she saw at an immigrant detention center. We'll also compare Trump's rhetoric on immigration to former Republican presidents in order to illustrate just how extreme modern-day Republicans have become. The Supreme Court decided to uphold Trump's Muslim ban, making even more of a mockery out of the court. AT&T unveils the industry's first post-net neutrality plan, and it's pretty ugly. Now, on the subject of net neutrality, I'll give you an update to the net neutrality situation in California, and also, internet activists in the EU are currently fighting to save the internet there after a new law existentially threatens memes. We'll also talk about how progressives fared in the latest primary elections, and I think you guys are going to like that portion of the program. And finally on the show, House Republicans are proposing cuts to Medicare and Medicaid in order to balance the budget they threw out of whack. So that's what we've got on the agenda today. I hope you guys enjoy the show. So as you all know, there's a ton of different primaries taking place, and we just got the results back from, I think, one of the most important districts of the year, New York's 14th Congressional District, and the results are are astonishing. We have a stunning upset with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeating corporate Democrat Joe Crowley. He got 42% of the vote. She got 57%. This is fucking huge. And honestly, I'm still stunned. I just found out about five minutes ago. Uh, I've been jumping up and down. I've been mass tweeting. This is gigantic. This is absolutely huge. Joe Crowley was in a position to become the next Democratic Party leader. He outspent her by a 10 to 1 margin. And this progressive, who takes $0 in corporate money, just kicked his ass. This was exactly what we needed. Um, I don't even know what to say. Um, 
this really shows that we can defeat the Democratic Party establishment. We can. And this also sends a gigantic message to the establishment. Move left or you're next. We had some defeats, but this one right here, this is a big one. This is a gigantic win for progressives. We don't know what the other results will be. We've got uh, the result of the Maryland gubernatorial race with um, Ben Jealous. We have Levi Tilleman's race. So there's a lot. But this one is the win that we needed the most. And we got it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated Joe Crowley. This is this is huge. This is our moment right here. You, you, you know the establishment is crazy terrified right now. Joe Crowley probably doesn't even know what to think. Man, I, I'm still like... <laughs> I really don't know what to say. This is just... This is really astonishing, and um, you've got to hand it to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She really ran just a phenomenal campaign. In fact, she ran a flawless campaign. So um, this really is just, this is fantastic news. Um, thank you so much to Alexandria for just giving us hope again after defeat, after defeat, after defeat. We needed this. We needed this so badly to show us that it's not impossible. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. And what she did was restore our faith. I don't think I've been this hopeful for a while. This really is a huge moment for us. Um, and I'm really, really thankful to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for, you know, giving that to us. A federal court just ruled recently that President Trump's administration must reunite the some 2,300 families that his administration decided to separate as a consequence of their zero-tolerance immigration policy. Now, up until this point, there really hasn't been a plan from the White House to, in fact, reunite families. There just hasn't been one. Logistically speaking, there hasn't been one. However, we are learning that Donald Trump is considering reuniting families, and this news came before a federal court ordered him to. But what he's advocating for is to not agree to reunite families unless they agree to be deported. It doesn't matter if they came here seeking asylum and fleed violence. If they want to ever see their family again, they have to agree to get out of the country. Now, it may be the case that this is a moot policy since a court has ordered him to reunite families, but nonetheless, we have to talk about this because it really gives you insight into just how cruel Donald Trump really is. As Darylind of Vox explains, over weeks of chaos and confusion, it became clear that the various departments and agencies involved in family separation, chiefly the Department of Homeland Security, which handles immigration enforcement, and the Department of Health and Human Services, which takes separated kids reclassified as unaccompanied alien children into custody, were so badly coordinated that it was nearly impossible for parents and immigration attorneys to locate children. The Trump administration is promising to fix that, but only in some circumstances. 
parents in immigration detention will be helped to get in touch with their family and speak to them regularly, and the Trump administration will make sure from a reunification and a removal facility in Port Isabel, Texas, that when a parent is ordered deported, her child will be sent back to their home country beside her. For parents who are trying to fight to stay in the U.S., for example, by pursuing asylum claims as they are legally entitled to do, though this isn't much of a promise, it's a horrible choice. Either a parent can keep fighting for asylum and accept that he may not be able to see his children for the months or years his case might take, or he can give up, waive both his own rights and the rights of his child, and agree to be reunified with his child en route to the country both of them fled to begin with. So basically, he's holding their children hostage until they agree to the terms of his demands. This doesn't sound like a president to me. This sounds like a mafia boss who kidnapped someone's children and is demanding a ransom. That's what this sounds like to me. He's making the prospect of reunification in the U.S. for individuals that came here seeking asylum impossible. You don't get to seek asylum. Or if you do want to seek asylum, you get to continue to be separated from your family. We're keeping your family away from you. So I don't know how this will um, be affected by the ruling for his uh, for his administration to actually reunite families. I think that that probably puts a stop to this, although, you know, this this whole debacle is still unfolding and we do need to wait and see how it plays out. But think of how far the U.S. has fallen when you look at how disgusting disgusting this policy is i mean it's not policy yet it's something that he wants to do but the fact that this would even cross his mind for more than a second this is a morally depraved individual this is someone who has no human empathy whatsoever he doesn't care about human suffering he doesn't care at all about the well-being of these families he doesn't care about the psychological stress that his uh, immigration policies are causing he doesn't care how disgusting and fascist he looks as a result of these policies doesn't care at all to him he's the victim why is the media picking on me why are courts striking this down it's always about donald trump it's always about him it doesn't matter it's not about these people i don't i don't think that there are enough words to describe how morally reprehensible this is but donald trump is really going to be regarded as one of the most amoral presidents in American history. The morality is never considered in any of his policies whatsoever. The Republican Party has moved so far to the right that they are now espousing a right-wing conservative ideology that is comparable to the fringe right-wing parties you see in Europe. And an example of that comes in the form of Donald Trump literally advocating to end due process for undocumented immigrants. On Twitter, he stated, We cannot allow all of these people to invade our country. When somebody comes in, we must immediately, with no judges or court cases, bring them back from where they came. Our system is a mockery to good immigration policy and law and order. Most children come without parents. That is the President of the United States calling for an end to due process. Any member of Congress right now who remains silent as the President calls for an end to due process can never speak 
about wanting to protect the Constitution ever again. If you don't come out and denounce this, you're not serious about wanting to protect the Constitution. George Bush already made a mockery of due process by having these rushed trials where immigrants weren't really given a fair chance to make their case, and oftentimes they'd just be prosecuted one after another after another and deported. So, I mean, it was bad enough that he already made a mockery of the idea of due process, but now, I mean, since it'd be more convenient, Donald Trump just wants to do away with the Constitution altogether and just get rid of due process for undocumented immigrants. I mean, it's bad enough that the Supreme Court has already upheld his unconstitutional Muslim ban. I don't care what they say, it's unconstitutional and it's a Muslim ban. So, I mean, if he did choose to get rid of due process, would they back him on this as well? I'm asking earnestly, because at this point I truly don't know which side they would take. Trump pulled down his pants and took a hot, steaming dump on the Constitution. So any constitutional conservative, any legal scholar who's not calling this out, you no longer have credibility. You've got to speak out on this. Due process is important. I mean, it's bad enough that George Bush ushered in a new era of violating the Constitution with the Patriot Act. Now we can have warrantless surveillance of citizens. And now Donald Trump wants to do away with due process. Un real. So this really goes to show you just how extremist modern day Republicans are. And I wanted to share a clip actually that really illustrates just how crazy modern Republicans are. Because when you juxtapose Trump with even a far right individual like Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush and listen to their rhetoric on immigration, well, it was a lot different than what we're hearing from Republicans today. I think the time has come that the United States and our neighbors, particularly our neighbor to the South, should have a better understanding and a better relationship than we've ever had. And I think that we haven't been sensitive enough to our size and our power. Rather than making them or talking about putting up a fence, why don't we work out some recognition of our mutual problems, make it possible for them to come here legally with a work permit, and then while they're working and earning here, they pay taxes here. We're doing two things. We're creating a whole society of really honorable, decent, family-loving people that are in violation of the law, and secondly, we're exacerbating relations with Mexico. The, cha the, the answer to your question is much more fundamental than whether they attend Houston schools, it seems to me. If they're living here, I don't want to see a whole thing of six- and eight-year-old kids being made, you know, one totally uneducated and made to feel that they're living with outside the law, let's address ourselves to the fundamentals. These are good people. Say what you will about Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. I think that Reagan was one of the worst presidents in our country's history, contrary to popular belief. But what he was saying there, specifically about immigration, he sounded like moderate Democrats sound today. And now, Republicans sound like completely lunatics. The guy who said we should deport all 11 million undocumented immigrants is now the president, and he's advocating for an end to due process so we can more efficiently get rid of all of these people who, quote, invaded our country. Look, here's the thing. If Republicans continue on this trajectory where they keep moving more and more and more to the right, eventually they're going to hit a wall. They're going to become so far right 
that they've gone as far as they can go and they've just become outright authoritarians. That's what we're beginning to see. It's the beginning of the end of the Republican Party's shift to the right. Because, again, you can only go so far to the right until you have no more room to shift on that political spectrum. And as they move to the right, they are shifting the Overton window to the right in the party. You'd think Democrats would try to move further to the left to combat this right-wing shift we see of the Republican Party. But they're, they're not. As Republicans move right, so do Democrats. So, Republicans really are going unchecked. They're allowed to move to the right and... It's not hurting them politically. They're still winning. Their base still loves them because their base is following them and moving more to the right too. And Democrats, they're not sufficiently challenging the Republican Party. So this, you know, I think that this video, as much as a lot of liberals don't like Ronald Reagan and and um, George H.W. Bush, I mean, modern day Republicans are nothing like them. Yes, they still supported ridiculously unfettered capitalistic neoliberal policies. Ronald Reagan was silent as thousands of LGBTQ plus Americans died because he refused to address the AIDS crisis. I mean, these are not good people in general. But even back then, they were still more sane, I guess you could say, at least on the issue of immigration than modern day Republicans, than Donald Trump is who called for an end to due process. Shame on Donald Trump. I don't know if he's even cognizant of the fact that he's calling for an end to due process, but this is disgusting. We're seeing democracy being eroded by a buffoon, an authoritarian-minded buffoon who is operating not on the basis of sound policy, but on an instinct to purge the country of anyone who doesn't look like him, to get rid of all the brown people because they're the ones causing all problems for other Americans. It's not unfettered capitalism. It's brown people. That's what he wants you to think. And the reason why he wants you to think that is because that helps him get elected. He's duping his supporters over and scapegoating immigrants because that's a really great way to galvanize support among his xenophobic right-wing base. It's really sad. It's really sad. Uh, At this point, I don't know if Republicans can even shift back to the left. They're so far gone, the party might just have to collapse, and Democrats might have to become the new de facto right-wing party, and a new progressive party emerges on the left. I mean, at this point, this is unsustainable. Senator Elizabeth Warren recently visited an immigrant detention center, and she spoke to CNN about what she saw. And she stated that she was disturbed by what she saw. And given the expression on her face, I think she's telling the truth. I really think that what she saw shook her to her core. So this is what she had to say. It's a disturbing picture. There are children by themselves. I saw a six-month-old baby, uh, little girls, little boys. Uh, There are um, mothers with their babies and with small children. Uh, Family units uh, are together if it's a very small child, but uh, uh, little girls who are 12 years old are taken away from the rest of their families and held separately, or little boys. Um, And they're all on concrete floors in cages. There's just no other way to describe it. 
um, they're big chain link cages on cold concrete floors and metal blankets handed out to people. Um, people are all just waiting and frightened. I was very lucky to have someone with me who speaks Spanish fluently. We were able to ask people individually about their stories, about what brought them here, where they came from. Uh, those particularly from El Salvador talked about the violence, uh, talked about how uh, the gangs had threatened them individually. One woman explained that she had given a drink of water to the police and now the police uh, that the gangs believe that she is helping the police and so she sold everything she has and she and her four-year-old son fled the country um, she believes that she would not survive if she went back uh, we talked to others talked to mothers who just said from Honduras in particular who said there's nothing there for us uh, we have no jobs, we have no money, we have no food for our children, and America is our last hope. The question we ask many of them, here they sat in this cage, um, were they glad they came? And for all of them, it brought smiles, and they said, yes, I am here in America. Um, this is not over. This is only the processing center I'm flood in. So I will, I've, I've finished here, I'm going from here to Catholic Charities, and then I will go on uh, to the detention center, which will be the next place that many of these people will go. So I've got more work to do today, so forgive me if I can't stay long. So when she was explaining those details, it, it was pretty difficult to listen to that, you know, um, she states, they're all on concrete floors and cages. There's just no other way to describe it. They're big chain link cages on cold concrete floors and metal blankets handed out to people. People are just waiting and they're frightened. I mean, I think that it's really important for lawmakers to go to these detention centers because it's easy to kind of have this conception of what's happening in your head, but until somebody goes there and explains to you that these are real people suffering, these are people who are terrified, you know, it really, it, it, it puts things in a new light, which I think is important. She also states, one woman explained that she had given a drink of water to the police and now she states the gangs believe that she's helping the police, which is why she fled. So she sold everything and she and her four-year-old son fled the country and she believes that she wouldn't survive if she went back. Now, I'm assuming that this is someone who came after Trump had already ended the child separation policy, but for the 2,300 families that have already been separated, their stories are probably going to be relatively similar to what this individual said. Think about what Donald Trump is using as a bargaining chip. He's saying, if you want to re be reunited with your families, well, then here's what you got to do. You got to agree to be deported and then we'll reunite you. So he, he doesn't even want to hear them out. He doesn't even want to allow them to make their case for asylum. He just wants them to go back, doesn't even care. Now, thankfully, a federal judge did recently order that 
Trump's administration reunite the families. But again, you have to understand that these are people who are fleeing violence, in large part created due to our neoliberal policies, the war on drugs. So, you know, when I hear that this woman doesn't believe she would survive if she went back, it, it's so heartbreaking because Trump is doing everything in his power to make sure that every single one of these people gets sent back. Seeking asylum is a human right, and he's trying to deny that to them. And again, some people who are arriving at legal ports of entry where you would arrive if you want to make your case for asylum, some of them are being detained. I mean, this, this cruelty, it's, to describe it as inhumane is redundant because I think that there's, there's no words that really capture just how morally repugnant this is. Now, what Elizabeth Warren said here really got me. She states, the question we asked many of them where they sat in this cage, were they glad they came? And for all of them, it brought smiles and they said, yes, I am here in America. Wow. So, if another human being is telling you that they prefer to be locked in a cage than go back to their country, you know the situation is bad. And put yourself in the shoes of an immigrant. If you have a family, if you have children, and there is a country nearby that could potentially give you a new chance at life, are you honestly telling me that you would deny your family that opportunity? I don't think you would. I don't think any reasonable person would. We all know that we'd make the same hard, tough decision that these families are making. So, this, this is really heartbreaking, but at the same time, even though I do believe that Elizabeth Warren is being genuine here... The cynic in me can't not ask why she wasn't more vocal about what Obama was doing. I mean, you can't deny the fact that Donald Trump's policies are objectively more cruel, hands down. You can't deny that. But at the same time, Obama's policies were not anything to write home about. They were very cruel. Obama built some of the detention centers that Donald Trump is storing these undocumented immigrants in now. Why wasn't Elizabeth Warren more forceful about it then? Why isn't Elizabeth Warren calling for ICE to be abolished? Bernie should be doing this too, to be fair. I mean, if what she saw was really as disturbing as how she describes it, which I believe it is, then shouldn't the response be a bold and unapologetically progressive policy solution? I mean, I did give Democrats some credit last week because I do think that them resisting Trump's family separation policy, it's it's been... <laughs> It's been an improvement, right? But by and large, overall, when you look at the totality of their resistance methods when it comes to immigration, when you look at DACA, for example, it's just been wholly inadequate. And Democrats have got to understand that this is an issue that's very serious. We, we just can't continue to claim that we care about human rights and that we, we have the moral high ground if we're locking human beings in cages. It's not right. And I'm glad that Elizabeth Warren sees that it's not right. And I'm glad that she's bringing this information to us because I think that this is crucial since these detention facilities aren't really allowing the media inside. But with that being said, I really want to see a real meaningful response from Democrats and a sustained response. That means that when Trump inevitably leaves office and a Democrat takes over at some point in time, 
if he or she does something that's cruel, call him or her out. Because cruelty, that transcends partisan boundaries. And if you truly care about being on the right side of history, and if you care about people and have human empathy, then you will call it out no matter who does it. So, uh, by and large, you know, I, I don't want to be too down on Elizabeth Warren because she's bringing us very crucial and important information. But at the same time, I, I just want all Democrats really to to really take a strong stance on, on things that are important. One way that President Donald Trump often cultivates support for his xenophobic immigration policies is to fearmonger about immigrants. I mean, he launched his campaign by saying immigrants that come here from Mexico, they're rapists, they're criminals. Um, and so this ongoing fearmongering is a way of talking about an issue that I think resonates with his voters. But in an interview with Jake Tapper on CNN, Bernie Sanders was asked to respond to Donald Trump's fearmongering about undocumented immigrants. And I think that Bernie Sanders had a really powerful response to Donald Trump's fearmongering. And I wanted to share what he had to say because it really does show that our side does have the moral high ground in this debate. President Trump. Uh, says that he is giving voice to people who don't get heard from. He, for instance, he's suggesting that Democrats need to focus more on the victims of crime committed by undocumented immigrants uh, instead of looking at the children separated at the border. I want you to take a listen at this from President Trump on Friday. These are the stories that Democrats and people that are weak on immigration, they don't want to discuss, they don't want to hear, they don't want to see, they don't want to talk about. How do you respond to President Trump making that argument? How well, come Democrats... Go ahead. I respond in two ways. Number one is I understand that the crime rate among undocumented people is actually lower than the general population. Number two, where was Trump bemoaning the fact that we had a guy in Las Vegas shooting down dozens and dozens of Americans? We had a young American walking into a high school in Parkland, Florida, shooting down kids. Crime is terrible. Murder is terrible. Let's deal with those issues and let's not suggest that the only causes of crime are coming from undocumented people. But once again, what our job is, is a government is to address the issues facing the American people. And time and time again, Jake, we have a president who lied to the American people, a president who told us he was going to take on the pharmaceutical industry. He lied. Drug prices are going up all across this country. He was going to guarantee during his campaign health care to everybody. More and more people have no health insurance. The cost of health care is going up. Unemployment is low, but for millions of workers, real wages are going down because of the cost of affordable housing, soaring prescription drugs, soaring gasoline at the pump, soaring. So that to me was great. The overall argument and implication really is that Donald Trump is given a voice to people who have been affected by the crimes of undocumented immigrants. But what Bernie Sanders says here is that the crime rate among undocumented people is actually lower than the general population. This is true. This is an inconvenient fact 
for people like Donald Trump. Trump's underlying implication here by saying that is that immigrants are more likely to commit crime than citizens, but they're actually statistically less likely to commit crime. As Richard Perez Pena of the New York Times reports, several studies over many years have concluded that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than people born in the United States, and experts say the available evidence does not support the idea that undocumented immigrants commit a disproportionate share of crime. Analyses of census data from 1980 through 2010 show that among men ages 18 to 49, immigrants were one-half to one-fifth as likely to be incarcerated as those born in the United States. Across all ages and sexes, about 7% of the nation's population are non-citizens, while figures from the Justice Department show that about 5% of inmates in state and federal prisons are non-citizens. Now, what Bernie Sanders also does here is he exposes how... Donald Trump is really virtue signaling here. He's pretending to take the moral high ground and to represent people whose voices aren't being represented by Congress. But what Bernie Sanders is saying is that if Donald Trump truly wants to make sure that people aren't harmed and that we reduce violence, then as president, he can use his bully pulpit to push for something that would in fact reduce violence, at least gun violence. He can call for universal background checks, which more than 90% of the country supports. He can call for a ban on assault weapons and bump stocks. He can call for a weapons buyback program to reduce the amount of guns already in circulation in the United States, but Trump is choosing to do nothing. So you can't claim to care about violence and protecting American families if you're not willing to attack that issue in a multitude of ways. You can't just say, oh, well, this type of violence is bad, but this type of violence is acceptable. That's not the way this works. Either you're against violence or you're not against violence. Bernie Sanders, like everyone, is against crime in general, which is what I think crimes committed by undocumented immigrants is, you know, that's a category that they would fall under. But I mean, if, if you really are, if Donald Trump is specifically worried about crime committed by undocumented immigrants, regardless of how small that percentage is, there are things he can do to reduce not just crimes committed by undocumented immigrants, but crimes com committed by everyone. You could end the drug war. If you legalized drugs or at least decriminalized drugs, do you know what type of a transformative effect that would have on gang violence in this country? It would be huge. It would be momentous. But Trump's not talking about that. You can provide people in socioeconomically disadvantaged communities with economic opportunity, with a jobs program, but Trump's goal isn't to provide solutions to people's problems. His goal is simply just to demonize immigrants. In fact, if Donald Trump had a hypothetical red button where if he pressed that, it would solve the problem of immigration, I would guess that he wouldn't do that. Because if he solves the problem of immigration, then what happens? He has nothing to run on in 2020. It's kind of the way that Republicans continuously run on abortion, but if push comes to shove, if you really if you really press them, they probably would rather have abortion be legal than illegal because it gives them something to rally the troops around. It helps them galvanize support. So they want the country to be fucked up because it helps them politically. Trump isn't interested in solutions. Bernie Sanders is interested in solutions. Trump is interested in his own career as a politician and his own ego. So he's saying that he cares about crime and he really wants to protect people who have been abandoned when in actuality, we all know that that's not true. If he cared about crime, he'd do something to bring down the crime rates. 
There are indirect policies like decriminalizing drugs and ending the drug war that would have a gigantic impact on gang violence. But he's not doing that. So he's full of shit. And I love how Bernie Sanders basically takes his fear-mongering head-on and calls him on his bullshit by pointing out this other issue that Trump is refusing to address. If you're, if you're in favor of protecting Americans, then put your money where your mouth is and use your bully pulpit to enact gun reform. End the wars. End the war on drugs. But he's not going to do that because Donald Trump is just about hating immigrants. That's what helped him get elected. And he's going to use that same strategy to try to win in 2020. So um, Bernie Sanders really is the only one who has meaningful responses to Trump's lunacy. And that's why I think Bernie Sanders would be a powerful opponent if he did face off against Donald Trump in 2020. Last week, in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, Kamala Harris was asked whether or not ICE should be abolished, and her answer essentially was no, that they should not be abolished. Now, this week, in an interview with Jake Tapper on CNN, Bernie Sanders had the chance to show Kamala Harris how it's done, how you answer that question, how you respond when someone asks you whether or not you support the abolition of ICE. And what did Bernie Sanders do? actually disappointed. So Bernie Sanders dodged the question. He did not say whether or not he would support the abolition of ICE. Take a look. More than a dozen Democratic congressional candidates uh, reportedly support abolishing or defunding ICE, uh, the Immigration uh, and Customs Enforcement Agency, uh, including candidate for governor of New York, Cynthia Nixon, who tweeted this week, quote, ICE is a terrorist organization and its <clears throat> egomaniacal leader is Donald Trump, signer petition to hashtag abolish ICE. Do you agree that ICE should be abolished? I think what we need is to create policies which deal with immigration in a rational way. And a rational way is not locking children up in detention centers or separating them from their mothers. What we need is Trump to sit down with members of Congress and work on a rational program which deals with a serious issue that was a dodge the correct answer bernie is yes that's it that's all you got to say yes and with occupy ice protests popping up across the country and democratic lawmakers like earl blumenauer and mark pocon advocating for ice to be abolished i think that the trajectory on this issue is clear i mean you have alexandria ocasio cortez win her primary against a corporate democrat someone poised to be one of the next leaders of the democratic party running on a platform to abolish ice so i think that bernie sanders has got to understand that abolishing ice is not only the correct policy position, but it's the morally right thing to do in the face of the numerous abuses of this particular government agency. And the problem here is that he's kind of setting himself up to be outflanked from the left in 2020 in the event someone else does choose to run and say that they do support the abolition of ICE. And in fact, since we've been putting pressure on Kamala Harris, guess what's happening? She has started to change her position on this subject. So as Yahoo News reports, Senator Kamala Harris of California has reconsidered her position on the agency. Harris, who is also viewed as a potential 2020 candidate, said Sunday during an interview with NBC News that we need to probably think about starting from scratch in immigration enforcement. Back in March, Harris said during an MSNBC interview that ICE has a purpose, ICE has a role, ICE should exist. So if Kamala Harris can change her position on this, then so can Bernie. And the thing is that I don't just want Bernie Sanders to say 
and declare that he supports abolishing ICE, I want him to mean it. I don't want him to just take this stance for purposes of political expediency. I want him to understand why abolishing ICE is the right thing to do. And unlike most lawmakers, he actually listens to what we have to say. If we haven't kept continuous pressure on him when it comes to Israel-Palestine, he still might be saying things that sound a lot like corporate Democrats on that subject. You have to let lawmakers know what position is the appropriate position, and you have to change their minds. That's the thing that's important to me. You have to change their minds. I want Bernie Sanders to want to abolish ICE and not just say he wants to abolish ICE. But I don't think that people who support Bernie should just settle and accept his non-answer here because Bernie Sanders is usually the, uh, one of the only individuals in Congress that is consistently on the right side of every issue in history. And he has foresight, perhaps more so than any other member of Congress. So if you genuinely support Bernie Sanders, then here's what you've got to do. You've got to change his mind. Bernie Sanders is not above criticism. He's not perfect. And if you support Bernie and you want him to be the best candidate in 2020, which he already is, but if you really want him to win, change his mind, make him more progressive, because I don't think we're backing down. I'm not backing down on this issue. Abolishing ICE is the right thing to do. So let's do it. Let's convince Bernie. And uh, I, I hope that he'll listen. So continue to tweet at him and email him. And I believe that if he hears from us, he'll do the right thing. He'll rethink his stance here. It's been a really interesting week for members of Donald Trump's administration, to say the least, because they are still dealing with backlash to the president's zero-tolerance immigration policy, which, as you all know, facilitates the separation of families at the border. Now, even though Trump signed an executive order ending family separation, the problem is that his administration thus far still has no real plan to reunite the some 2,300 families that it already separated. And furthermore, even though they're not separating families, they're still locking human beings in cages, so the cruelty hasn't ended. And as a result, people are still justifiably outraged at the way this administration is treating undocumented immigrants. And individuals within Trump's administration aren't able to escape criticism once they clock out, because they're now being publicly shamed for the actions of this administration to which they represent. Stephen Miller, for example, was called a fascist while he was having dinner at a Mexican restaurant. Florida Attorney General and Trump surrogate Pam Bondi was confronted by protesters while attending a screening of a documentary about Mr. Rogers. Additionally, protesters gathered in front of Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nelson's house, but that was only after she was shamed while having dinner at a Mexican restaurant. When DSA members demanded that Trump's family separation policy end and also that the administration abolish ICE. Now, these types of protests reached a fever pitch when U.S. Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders was denied service at the Red Hen restaurant which then prompted her to tweet from her official press secretary account, Last night I was told by the owner of Red Hen in Lexington, VA, to leave because I work for POTUS and I politely left. Her actions say far more about her than about me. I always do my best to treat people, including those I disagree with, respectfully, and will continue to do so. Now, I find that tweet really interesting, not only because this is a public official 
tweeting about a private business from her official government account, which violates ethics laws. But also, it's interesting because even though she's claiming, like, this wasn't really a big deal, you know, she just left politely, you can tell she was hurt. She wouldn't have tweeted about it. She wouldn't have named and shamed this restaurant had she not been offended by this. And by making that tweet, she was hoping for a response. Because as soon as she did that, of course, the restaurant's Yelp page was flooded with thousands of negative reviews. The restaurant was also reportedly egged and the owners allegedly received death threats. So it became this whole debacle and even the president decided to publicly condemn this restaurant because, of course, why wouldn't he? And he tweeted out, the Red Hen restaurant should focus more on cleaning its filthy canopies, doors, and windows, badly needs a paint job, Rather than refusing to serve a fine person like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I always had a rule. If a restaurant is dirty on the outside, it is dirty on the inside. Now, as someone pointed out on Twitter, if Trump truly cared about cleanliness, then he should probably worry more about Mar-a-Lago and not other restaurants, since Mar-a-Lago has already been slapped with numerous health code violations. But Donald Trump wasn't alone in defending Sarah Huckabee Sanders because Daddy also came to the rescue. Because Mike Huckabee states, Bigotry. On the menu at Red Hen Restaurant in Lexington, VA, or you can ask for the hate plate. And appetizers are small plates for small minds. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I just love the irony here. I love the irony of us being lectured about bigotry and small-mindedness by the same guy that passionately defended a county clerk's right to overtly discriminate against gay couples that want to get married. That individual who has consistently advocated against civil rights for gay people is calling this restaurant bigoted. No, actually, the restaurant is protesting bigotry. Bigotry of this administration and how they treat immigrants, which your daughter is complicit in. But believe it or not, Republicans and right-wingers in general really are shameless enough to elevate this to a matter of civil rights. And now the question is, was Sarah Huckabee's civil rights violated? And I'm not joking about this. This is actually a conversation that members of the mainstream media were having. The lady who owns this restaurant, is she allowed to do that? Is that discrimination? Are you allowed to just kick someone out because you don't agree with their policies or their beliefs? Whatever happened to tolerance? What happened the other day violates the spirit of, of the Civil Rights Act <clears throat> of 1964. Now, again, since this conversation is so ridiculous, I feel the need to remind you that that was, in fact, a conversation about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She's an individual that doesn't like being kicked out of restaurants herself. However, she happily defended this administration's anti-LGBTQ plus stance when it came to businesses kicking out them. The lawyer from the Solicitor General's office for the administration said today in court, in the Supreme Court, that it would be legal, it would be um, uh, possible for a baker to put a sign in his window saying, quote, we don't bake cakes for gay weddings. Does the president agree that that would be okay? The president certainly supports uh, religious liberty, um, and that's something that he talked about during the campaign has since upheld uh, since taking office. That would be, that would, that would I believe that would include okay. that. Okay. Now, in case you missed it, at the end there, she said, I believe that would include that, meaning the White House's pro-religious liberty stance would allow business owners to put up signs saying that they don't serve gay people. And one business owner actually did do this recently. And for some reason, this reminds me of another time in history, but I just can't place my finger on it. So after being consistently pro-discrimination, all of a sudden, 
the White House and Republicans are against allowing businesses to just kick out anyone they want. But the reason why this is different, according to them, is because they were kicking out Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And to them, that's somehow worse than private business owners refusing to serve gays. But for some reason, right-wingers didn't rush to Joe Biden's defense back in 2012. In fact, when Joe Biden was turned away from a conservative bakery in Ohio because the owner didn't like a comment that President Barack Obama said with regard to small businesses and entrepreneurship, Business actually exploded for that bakery. They sold out of particular products. A freedom cookie, for example, they sold out of that. In fact, customers specifically told local news agencies that they decided to shop there only after hearing about how the owner refused service to Joe Biden. So it's not like they're taking the position that you shouldn't refuse service to government officials, otherwise they would have come to Joe Biden's defense. Really what this is about is that right-wingers can do whatever they want and liberals are held to a completely different standard because they're liberals. As Mark Dice explains on Twitter, liberals aren't people, they're animals. Or as Coke-backed sellout Dave Rubin puts it, progressivism is a mental disorder. Therefore, everything we say is meaningless and never to be respected and everything they say is to be taken as gospel. But nevertheless, the conversation surrounding Sarah Huckabee Sanders and this particular debacle changed. It was no longer a conversation about Trump officials being shamed in public. And instead, it was about whether or not Trump supporters should be allowed to be shamed in public. And I think that a comment made by Sarah Huckabee Sanders herself really does highlight why the conversation began to change. Healthy debate on ideas and political philosophy is important. But the calls for harassment and push for any Trump supporter to avoid the public is unacceptable. Now, what she said there is really important because in case you missed it, she changed the terms of the debate. She states, the calls for harassment and push for any Trump supporter, keep that in mind, any Trump supporter to avoid the public is unacceptable. Now, understand that we're not talking about just any old Trump supporter. We're talking about you, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We're talking about an official who's part of government, who's in a uniquely powerful position that has the ability to affect change for the better, but is instead choosing to remain complicit while the administration she represents carries out morally repugnant policies. Public officials shouldn't be insulated from criticism once they clock out. If you're part of the power establishment in this country, I think that protests that disrupt your private life are not only legitimate, but they're necessary. And they're necessary specifically because of how effective they are. Then FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler didn't become an ally because we politely asked him to not ruin the internet. No, he listened to net neutrality activists because they literally showed up to his house and blocked his car from leaving his driveway. Ajit Pai didn't even really acknowledge the fact that people were against his plan to kill net neutrality until they started showing up in his neighborhood, placing flyers on doors, and putting signs outside of his house so he can see it. I mean, these forms of protests... They may be unorthodox, but they're especially necessary when public officials refuse to listen to the people they represent. Even if they weren't elected, they still serve the public. They're paid with our tax dollars, and we are their bosses regardless if they want to acknowledge that or not. But the overall implication here, and what a lot of people are concerned with this Sarah Huckabee Sanders situation, is that if we allow businesses to kick people out on the premise of political affiliation, then doesn't this create a slippery slope? Won't this lead to people kicking out Trump supporters and worse uh, for us specifically, progressives as well? 
So the question is, where do you draw the line? And I do think that's an important question. But first, you've got to understand that there are multiple dimensions to this particular issue. So even though I think it's useful to cite the bakery case because it reveals the right's hypocrisy, this situation isn't necessarily the same in my opinion. In fact, I'd argue that the gay baker case is only tangentially related to the Sarah Huckabee Sanders case. The gay baker in Colorado discriminated against a protected class who was protected by law because of our country's history of mistreating members of the LGBTQ plus community. Now, when the baker of the Red Hen refused service to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, it was on the basis of her position in Trump's administration. It was a form of protest against this administration's immigration policies. It was this business owner's way of speaking truth to power. So with that in mind, I think that a lot of people, perhaps most people, are misconceptualizing the issue here. This isn't just as simple as a liberal restaurant owner kicking out a conservative patron, because if it, if it really were that simple, then I would be against the restaurant owner. Because I'm against discrimination based on political affiliation. Even if discrimination based specifically on political affiliation is completely legal, I wouldn't advocate or support a restaurant owner kicking out someone with a MAGA hat. Because then what does that mean? We're just going to be an even more tribalistic society where anyone with the Trump hat will be kicked out and anyone with a Bernie shirt will be kicked out as well. So I'm not advocating for that. I don't want that to happen. In fact, a judge recently ruled that a bar's refusal to serve someone wearing a MAGA hat was actually legal. Now, even though it's legal, that doesn't make it right. Now, I'm not saying that political affiliation or ideology should be a protected class because if you protect, you know, uh, Trump supporters or Bernie supporters, then that means you have to protect all political ideologies and make them a protected class. That means that fascists and members of the KKK would be a protected class. So even though I don't think it should be a protected class, I don't think people should kick out individuals simply because they're Trump supporters. I mean, if you deny service to a regular Trump supporter with no power whatsoever, that's something that I'm against. And I think most people would be against that who are reasonable because I do believe that this is a slippery slope. And I certainly don't want to normalize businesses kicking people out based solely on political affiliation or ideology. In fact, I'm even against the DSA's protest of Milo Yiannopoulos because even if he holds some really disgusting political views... He has no real political power. Influence doesn't necessarily translate directly into power, even if he is using his platform irresponsibly and he should be challenged. So in sum, I think it's perfectly acceptable for private citizens to confront people in power if they do see them in public while they're not in Congress or off the clock. But even if I think that's acceptable, that doesn't mean that I have to agree with them. I totally disagreed with Alex Jones' decision to confront Bernie Sanders at LAX a few weeks ago. I mean, it was for nonsensical, clickbaity reasons, of course. But the question is, did he have a right to do that? And I think the answer is yes. But if you accept this position, you do have to be nuanced and realize that the line between confronting and protesting a public official and outright harassing them may sometimes be blurry. So you do want to realize, you know, what tactics might be appropriate. With that being said, public officials that especially open themselves up to this type of criticism generally deserve it. And the reason why it's such a big deal when it happens is because it's so rare. Citizens usually don't feel the need to resort to these types of protest tactics unless 
what public officials are doing is particularly egregious or they're just downright ignoring people in the public. So I do think that the situation warranted that level of resistance because that was a way we got people in Trump's administration to pay attention to what we were talking about. Now, with that being said, even in the midst of all of the rights hypocrisy, I do believe that they have a point on one particular issue. When they state that even when Obama locked families in cages, there really was no outrage from the left. Now look, Donald Trump's policies are objectively worse. They're more cruel. But conservatives still have a point because liberals always extend deference to Democratic administrations and they never pay attention to the disgusting policy positions that Democratic presidents implement. However, even though right-wingers are correct in pointing out the left's hypocrisy here, let's not pretend as if the right doesn't also overlook right-wing administrations. For example, Charlie Kirk condemned Obama's pardoning of nonviolent drug offenders, but then when Trump did it, he called him courageous for it. So I think that there's a degree of hypocrisy on both sides. However, by and large, when you look at both sides here, it is clear that the right has been less ideologically consistent here. In fact, I think that they are shamelessly hypocritical, especially when they are using the language of civil rights, talking about bigotry and small-mindedness, to apply that to Sarah Huckabee Sanders being protested. No, they're protesting her bigotry. It's not bigotry to protest bigotry. But the right doesn't get that. So understand that you can support peaceful protests against members of Trump's administration and simultaneously be against discrimination based on political ideology. The goal here in disrupting the lives of people in power isn't to set a new precedent with respect to how people with a particular political affiliation should be treated. It's about holding corrupt and rogue government officials accountable when they do bad things, when they screw over people, when they hurt people. If they're not going to listen to you, if you can't get their attention by voting, by showing up to protest, then you have to resort to these types of unorthodox protest methods because it's the one way you get them to pay attention to you. So, I mean, by and large, I'm okay with Sarah Huckabee Sanders being kicked out of the red hand. I'm not going to cry for her. I'm not going to shed any tears for her. This is really a moment where a lot of us should be saying, womp womp, because you're not the victim, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Nobody in Trump's administration are the victims. They're the victimizers, regardless of what they want you to think. I really don't think it's accurate to say that members of the Democratic Party's leadership are part of the resistance, because at this point, it's safe to say that they've become the assistants. They are now enabling Donald Trump, and they, they've they gotten so bad that they are chastising members of the party that dare to speak out against Trump in certain ways. So as you all know, uh, there's been a lot of officials within Trump's administration that have been publicly shamed for the White House's disgustingly cruel immigration policies. Now, this is what Maxine Waters had to say about that situation. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd. And you push back on them. And you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Really, the main point here 
about what she was trying to do is she was trying to affirm these forms of protests as legitimate and necessary forms of protest. So if folks want to protest Trump's administration by calling Stephen Miller a fascist in public or yelling shame at Kirsten Nelson, Maxine Waters is basically saying this is one of many ways people can speak truth to power. But with that being said, Put that aside for a moment because this video isn't actually about Maxine Waters. Instead, it's about the Democratic Party's leadership and their response to what she said about citizens protesting members of Donald Trump's administration. Here's what Nancy Pelosi said about Maxine's comments. In the crucial months ahead, we must strive to make America beautiful again. I don't know what that even means. Trump's daily lack of civility has provoked responses that are predictable but unacceptable. As we go forward, we must conduct elections in a way that achieves unity from sea to shining sea. Nancy, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> We must strive to make America beautiful again. That means nothing. That is an empty statement. It's completely meaningless. As we go forward, we must conduct elections in a way that achieves unity from sea to shining sea. She's not saying anything meaningful or substantive, but by and large, her goal here was to condemn Maxine Waters, but it wasn't just Nancy Pelosi. Chuck Schumer, who isn't even in the House, he's the leader of Senate Democrats, also took the time to condemn Maxine Waters on the Senate floor. Many of us disagree with the policies of the current administration. In a country as large and diverse as ours, politics has always been a noisy, raucous affair, probably even more so today. That's okay. But we all have to remember to treat our fellow Americans, all of our fellow Americans, with the kind of civility and respect we expect will be afforded to us. I strongly disagree with those who advocate harassing folks if they don't agree with you. If you disagree with someone or something, stand up. Make your voice heard. Explain why you think they're wrong and why you're right. Make the argument. Protest peacefully. If you disagree with a politician, organize your fellow citizens to action and vote them out of office. But no one should call for the harassment of political opponents. That's not right. That's not American. So apparently the Democratic Party's leaders haven't learned that platitudes and the politics of politeness will get them nowhere in the face of ruthless Republicans who are trying to crush them. Now, as they unequivocally condemn Maxine Waters and iterate that idiotic sentiment when they go low, we go high, which obviously hasn't worked for them thus far, but they're, they're echoing that same sentiment from 2016 that ended up leading to them losing. But what's interesting to me is that Chuck Schumer recently suggested that he's been a more hands-off leader and, you know, he lets members of the Democratic Party do as they please. And to demonstrate how this is the case, well, he recently talked with Chris Cuomo on CNN about how he's not going to reprimand Joe Manchin if Joe Manchin chooses to go full MAGA in 2020. Joe Manchin is a guy who likes to talk to everybody and listen to them, and almost inevitably, he does what's right for West Virginia. I might back Trump in 2020. Never heard a sitting Democrat or Republican say that about a president from the out party. I have faith Joe Manchin will come to the right decision for West Virginia. He almost always has. 
I have faith Joe Manchin will come to the right decision for West Virginia. That's Chuck Schumer's response when a member of his party goes rogue and starts batting for the other team. However, if a Democrat chooses to call out Donald Trump in a way that makes him feel uncomfortable, then it's unequivocal condemnation from Chuck Schumer. And they're lambasting Maxine Waters here, but it's curious because they haven't said anything about the Democrats that recently voted to deregulate Wall Street or expand Trump's power to unilaterally spy on American citizens without a warrant or increase our already bloated military budget or support PAYGO. In fact, Nancy Pelosi championed PAYGO. Credit to Jimmy Dore who talks about this all the time. So if you're a Democrat in Congress and you do something that emboldens Donald Trump, then members of the Democratic Party leadership are going to leave you alone. However, if you do something that makes them feel uncomfortable, that might lead to this narrative that Democrats are uncivil, then they're going to come out and attack you for it. So the point here is that they chose to go out of their way to criticize her because she's daring to stand up to Donald Trump and resist him. Well, rather than criticizing Maxine Waters, maybe you should try to learn from her in this particular instance, Nancy and Chuck, because all this time you have shown to be spineless in the face of any criticism from Republicans whatsoever. I mean, they caved in, what, two and a half days during the last government shutdown? They said they would defend DACA. Chuck Schumer changed his Twitter profile pic to I stand with dreamers. And what happens? They cave after two days, completely unilaterally disarm, allow uh, dreamers to just get abandoned. You don't know how to fight. You are feckless leaders. You don't know how to stand up to Donald Trump. Now, since you're spineless and you refuse to step aside and let someone who's a real leader take your place, at least be quiet when someone in your own party chooses to stand up to Donald Trump in a way that's meaningful and effective. Look, I'm just going to say how I feel on this particular issue. The Supreme Court has gone rogue. It's official. I mean, they've been out of touch for a long time, dating back to decisions like Buckley v. Vallejo in the 70s, and more recent examples being um, Bush v. Gore in 2000 and Citizens United in 2010. But now, with their decision to uphold Donald Trump's Muslim ban, which is blatantly unconstitutional, They've officially gone rogue. At this point, they're not doing their job. They're tasked with protecting and upholding the Constitution, but they're just giving Donald Trump a blank check to discriminate. They're allowing for discrimination. Now, as MSNBC's Steve Bennon puts it, a month ago, the Supreme Court sided against workers' rights in an important arbitration case. A week later, the high court sided with Ohio Republicans on purges from state voter rolls. A week after that, the justices rejected efforts to stop partisan gerrymandering. Today, the Supreme Court sided with Donald Trump on his Muslim ban and said California's law on anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers is likely unconstitutional. So, so decision after decision hasn't just been a slap in the face for Americans, but it's been an affront to the U.S. Constitution. They are out of touch. And look, the last time the Supreme Court was this out of touch, FDR threatened them with a court packing plan. And look, their job ultimately is to interpret the U.S. Constitution, but they do need to interpret it in a way that coincides with public opinion. They can't get too out of touch with public opinion, otherwise they do lose their legitimacy. Because the court 
it doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. They issue a ruling, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to abide by it. So, for example, when they passed Brownview Board of Education, I mean, there was no enforcement mechanism. They didn't have a police force that got out and told schools they had to desegregate. So, the way that the court functions is on this basis of legitimacy. So long as the public sees their rulings as constitutional and in line with public opinion to a degree, then they have legitimacy, but they've just gotten out of touch. This is public opinion, and this is where the Supreme Court should be. This is where they are in actuality. They're so out of touch with public opinion. So maybe it's time to start threatening them with another court packing plan so they get their shit together and realize that they don't have a blank check to do whatever they want, and their job is to defend the Constitution, not Republican presidents or Democratic presidents. You interpret the Constitution, and the Constitution very clearly states that discrimination is not acceptable, but nonetheless, they're allowing for Donald Trump's Muslim ban. How ridiculously insane is that? So, for more details on the Muslim ban, we go to the New York Times, who states, In a 5-4 to four vote, the court's conservatives said the president's statutory power over immigration was not undermined by his history of incendiary statements about the dangers he said Muslims pose to Americans. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. said that Mr. Trump had ample statutory authority to make national security judgments in the realm of immigration, and he rejected a constitutional challenge to Mr. Trump's latest executive order on the matter. His third, this one issued as a proclamation in September. But the court's liberals decried the decision. In a passionate and searing dissent from the bench, Justice Sonia Sotomayor said the decision was no better than Korematsu v. United States, the 1944 decision that endorsed the detention of Japanese Americans during World War II. By upholding the travel ban, she said the court merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. Justices Kennedy, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch joined the majority opinion. Now, the irony here is that even though this is very similar to the 1944 Korematsu decision, well, they decided to overrule that decision in this very case, which is basically their way of virtue signaling and trying to convince us that they totally care about the Constitution, even though they just declare that Trump has the power to ban people from entering this country based solely on their religious affiliation. They still care about the Constitution, though, guys. But, I mean, of course, they claim Trump's Muslim ban is actually different than Korematsu, when it's not, given what Donald Trump said about the issue and him referring to it as a Muslim ban. However, they stay basically that they don't have to consider what Donald Trump said because this is really just about denying foreign nationals entry, not Muslims entry. And they say this even though he explicitly said on the campaign trail, we need a complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country until we can figure out what's going on. But according to them, you know, we don't have to take the president at his own word that it's a Muslim ban. We don't. We can just say that, you know, this is about him denying entry to foreign nationals, even though he said it was a Muslim ban previously. So, I mean, this violates the Constitution in probably numerous ways, but I think the most glaring way it violates it is the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. You can't discriminate on the basis of religious affiliation, and I think these pro-religious liberty Republicans would want that to be the case, because if we can discriminate against Muslims, then obviously we're empowered to discriminate against Christians as well. But no, the Supreme Court is ignoring what Donald Trump said, and they are doing mental jujitsu to interpret it in a way that 
makes it not be a Muslim ban when it very much is a Muslim ban. They don't represent the Constitution. They represent Republicans. If you are one of the people deluded enough to think that the Supreme Court is nonpartisan, I, I feel sorry for you. They're not doing their job. They're not representing the Constitution. And furthermore, they recently decided to hand a victory to a bigoted baker just a few weeks ago, and now they indirectly handed another victory to another bigoted business owner. As Lydia Wheeler of The Hill reports, the Supreme Court on Monday threw out a lower court ruling that found a Washington state florist had intentionally discriminated against a same-sex couple for refusing to make flower arrangements for their wedding. The justices vacated the ruling and sent the court case back down to the Washington Supreme Court giving the florist Baronel Stutzman another chance to make her case in light of their decision earlier this month in favor of a Colorado baker who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage. Now, the question is, why vacate this decision? Why not just make a ruling? Why not just establish precedent? Because they know if they truly interpreted the Constitution, where that would lead them. It would lead them to side against the bigoted baker. But the reason why they're being cowards and they're not ruling is because they know that this is unconstitutional. But in order to allow for this type of discrimination to continue, this type of brazen discrimination that's obviously homophobic, well, they would be undermining decades of precedent. So they're allowing it to go on by just not really taking a stand and setting precedent because they're cowards. Now, here's the thing. They're not just allowing private business owners to deny services to gay people that they would otherwise offer to straight couples because they're allowing the GOP to gerrymander even if that gerrymandering is specifically designed to disenfranchise voters of color. Now, as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams reports, in a victory for GOP, racial gerrymanders everywhere, and a significant loss for voting rights, the Supreme Court's conservative majority on Monday overturned a lower court ruling and revived electoral districts drawn by Texas Republicans that many experts say are blatantly designed to discriminate against minorities, compounding what has already been a rough several days for activists and and legal experts working to combat gerrymandering nationwide, the Supreme Court also decided to send a major North Carolina partisan gerrymandering case back to a lower court, leaving intact congressional maps that rights groups argue were drawn to discriminate against Democratic voters. So, the Supreme Court has gone rogue. They're not defending the Constitution. They're just doing what Republicans want. Now, some people might make, you know, a counter argument and say, but Mike, I mean, some of what they do is good. They decided to strike down a ban on same-sex marriage in 2015. And that's great. But I think that the fact that that decision, the Obergefell decision was five to four still shows us how they're rogue. Because something that is so common sense, I mean, if you study the constitution, you'd know that marriage equality should be the law of the land. So the fact that it was that close shows that they're rogue because it should be a no-brainer. It should be nine to zero. I mean, something so obviously unconstitutional like bans on marriage equality or a Muslim ban, it shouldn't even be up for a debate. I'm sorry. It shouldn't even be up for a, a debate. 
They're not appointed to the Supreme Court to give us their opinions, but instead to interpret the Constitution. If you want political commentary, you watch shows like this. Now, after proving that they are nothing more than partisan ideologues by upholding Donald Trump's hilariously unconstitutional Muslim ban, guess what happened? They dealt another blow to unions, and now Justice Kennedy announced that he's going to be retiring, which means that what's going from a conservative majority, that's going to stay the same, but it's going to be a very extremist and hardline conservative majority. So those instances on social issues, on reproductive rights, on LGBT rights, where Justice Kennedy was the swing vote, that's gone. They're now going to have the authority, if they want to, to overturn decades of precedent and overturn Roe v. Wade and overrule the recent victory we got with Obergefell, uh, LGBTQ marriage. So this is what we have to look forward to now. So they don't serve you. They serve the Republican Party. And since Republicans decided to steal a Supreme Court seat from Democrats and decided to play dirty, maybe it's time our side plays dirty too. Maybe it's time we introduce a court packing plan when we get back in power. We need a new generation of Supreme Court justices that actually care about interpreting the Constitution objectively and not making sure that everything their party wants, they get. Last week, after one Democrat in California, Miguel Santiago spearheaded an effort to gut their state's net neutrality bill, while the sponsor of that legislation, Scott Wiener, decided to just pull the bill. Because at that point, it was gutted and it was no longer a net neutrality bill. He feared probably that if it passed, then people would think that they have net neutrality when the bill was a shell of what it used to be. It was a fake net neutrality bill. I believe this is the exact language he used. However, he is indicating to us that it is a possibility that the bill could be resurrected because he is currently working with Miguel Santiago, of all people, to bring it back to life, probably because Santiago was called out for being the shill that he was. And now he's doing damage control and playing the victim, of course. As CNET's Marguerite Reardon explains, the bill's author, State Senator Scott Wiener, a Democrat from San Francisco, on Friday said he and fellow Democrat Assemblyman Miguel Santiago Santiago will begin negotiating next week to fix the bill to ensure the protections that were weeded out in the committee process are added back into the legislation. Santiago is chairman of the Assembly Committee working on the bill. Santiago confirmed he is working with Wiener on a compromise but fell short of promising he'd roll back his amendments. Net neutrality lives, he said in a statement. It really does. The move to weaken the bill was seen as a major blow to Democrats in Congress and in state houses across the country who were looking to California to set a high standard as they pushed to reinstate strong net neutrality protections to replace the rules the Republican-led FCC voted to eliminate. It's also angered supporters of the movement who have accused Santiago of being a shill for the big broadband companies like AT&T, which has contributed thousands of dollars to his campaigns. Santiago denies these 
claims. In a statement issued Friday, he tried to explain his position, explaining he wanted to make sure that the legislation could withstand legal challenges from the broadband industry. But when it became clear that Wiener would not accept changes, Santiago said he didn't want Wiener to drop the bill and walk away from it. The clock kept ticking, he said. But we ran out of time. The author and I simply could not come to a resolution with the same goal of getting a strong progressive net neutrality bill. The backlash against Santiago has gotten personal, and he accused the media and activists of fanning the flames with what he called sensational and anger-inducing messaging. He said he's been threatened and his wife harassed, and he said his personal family pictures had been stolen from his social media pages and used to create memes. Oh no. Really, he said, using pictures of my kids? This is a new low. Progressives don't behave that way. We expect this type of disrespect, fake news, and insults from Trump, not those who support dignity and progressive values. So, understand the irony here. This dickhead is lecturing us on what it means to be progressive as he just shilled for the industry. And, furthermore, he invoked a Trump tactic. He cried, fake news on the reports about him being a shill. Well, if you connect the dots, you'll see that he took thousands of dollars from AT&T and then in turn did their bidding. That looks like a shill. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a fucking duck, or in this case, a shill. And understand that he's doing the same thing that Ajit Pai did when Ajit Pai received criticism and when people protested him. He's saying, oh, well, how could you do this? I mean, the nerve, you created memes about me. I mean, now it's the end of the world. I've been memed. Now I'm pissed. You're worried about memes? Talk about someone with a victim complex. You are a shill. You are an absolute shill. That's unquestionable. And if net neutrality is to be enacted in California, we want you to stay the fuck away from it. Get as far away from it as possible. Scott Wiener should absolutely not let you have anything to do with it. Now, I want to talk about um his bullshit excuses for why he was against it anyway. So his goal was to make sure that Wiener's legislation could withstand legal challenges from the broadband industry since, of course, you all know the FCC did in fact preempt states and block them from uh, passing their own net neutrality laws. So the reason why he gutted Wiener's bill was because he wanted to make sure that that legislation could withstand legal challenges that would inevitably come about due to... Um, you know, um, opposition from the broadband industry. But the FCC already preempted states and blocked them from passing their own legislation regarding net neutrality, so wouldn't they attack anything, including a fake net neutrality bill? I mean, you don't have an excuse, you don't have an answer for why you shilled for AT&T. They are your fifth largest donors, and now you're outraged that we have the audacity to call you a shill after you're shilling for them, and now... You're trying to rebuild the bill that you killed in the first place? I don't think so. You can stay away from this bill. If you live in California and this is your representative, vote him out immediately. Don't even give him a chance to make his case. This is someone who's a shill. He's just angry that he got caught. He got caught brazenly doing the bidding of AT&T because look, this, is, this was the strongest net neutrality bill in the country. Had it passed, it would have set a new standard. But what did lobbyists who represented companies like AT&T and Verizon do? They relentlessly and ruthlessly did everything in their power to push back against this bill. It's not, I mean, his attempt here to water down Wiener's net neutrality bill wasn't the first attempt in California. 
So understand here that this is not someone who is looking out for your best interest. He's clearly representing his donors. He's bought. He's corrupt. He's a sellout. He is everything wrong with corporate Democrats and really politicians in general who take contributions from the industry that they're supposed to be regulating and then do their bidding. Unbelievable. If Miguel really had any dignity, he would step down. He would resign because what you did is unforgivable. You killed a net neutrality bill that people in your state overwhelmingly support. What is wrong with you? And you have the nerve to say that we're the ones who are doing fake news and smearing you? Get the fuck out of here. When the repeal of Title II net neutrality protections officially took effect a couple of weeks ago, at the time I predicted that it'd probably be a while until we see companies brazenly roll out plans that violate net neutrality, given that the public is still really engaged on this issue and, frankly, still outraged that the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality. However, these companies are so greedy that they're already proving me wrong because AT&T just announced their first post-net neutrality era plan and it's ugly. It brazenly violates net neutrality. Now, as AJ Dellinger of Gizmodo reports, fresh off an apparently successful effort to gut a net neutrality bill in California, AT&T is taking a victory lap with the announcement of Watch TV, a skinny streaming TV bundle that finally shows us what the internet will look like without net neutrality protections. Launching next week, Watch TV offers 31 channels, including a handful from Time Warner, which AT&T just recently acquired after an impossibly bad legal case from the U.S. Department of Justice failed to stop it for $15 and comes free with AT&T's recently announced unlimited data plans. Here's where net neutrality advocates will start pulling their hair out. Next week, AT&T will make available two different but equally terribly named unlimited plans, Unlimited and More and Unlimited and More Premium. Both plans offer a $15 monthly credit that can be applied to purchase DirecTV satellite TV service. The Unlimited and More plan starts at $70 per month for a single line and offers users access to watch TV for free, though the video streaming quality will be capped at 480p. Unlimited and More Premium starts at $80 per month for one line and unlocked 1080p video and 15 gigabytes of hotspot data. It also gives subscribers the ability to choose one premium streaming service that they will get for free each month. Options include HBO or Cinemax, both Time Warner properties, Showtime Stars, Amazon Music Unlimited, or Pandora Premium. The introduction of Watch TV and limited unlimited plans is the first true sign that we're living in a post-net neutrality world. We're now just a couple of steps away from some telecom making those this is what the internet will look like without net neutrality graphics a reality. So that's cool. Now this is especially problematic because it violates net neutrality in two ways. First of all, they're intentionally throttling video quality. Users have to pay $10 more per month if they want to, quote, unlock 1080p video. Now, when T-Mobile capped video streaming quality and tried to charge people who wanted 1080p $25 more per month, well, they got in trouble with the FCC. And now, AT&T is perfectly allowed to do this. In fact, what they're doing is legal because they decided to disclose that they are, in fact, violating net neutrality. Now, additionally, another way that this violates net neutrality is 
It violates the principle of zero rating. It's anti-competitive. They're giving you this watch TV streaming service for free, and the goal here is to encourage people to cancel other streaming services. And if they're able to actually become a huge force in the market of streaming because of these anti-competitive policies, then can you guess what they'll do once they've eliminated their competition? Hike up prices immediately. Now, when you go to their website and look at these plans, you can see that they do, in fact, cap streaming, which... Again, I mean, you can't be more brazen about violating net neutrality. But again, I have to reiterate because this is so ridiculous. Since they're saying we're violating net neutrality in not so many words, well, Ajit Pai would say, well, this is perfectly acceptable. They are disclosing the fact, they're being transparent about the fact that they are violating net neutrality. So, I mean, they're, they're well within their legal right to do this. That is the absurdity of this post-net neutrality era. And we can all thank Ajit Pai for this. Now, even though this is the first post-net neutrality plan that violates net neutrality, companies like Verizon started to actually roll out similar plans last year ahead of the FCC's repeal of net neutrality, believe it or not. So companies like Verizon were a little bit more bold to do this back then because simply they just anticipated that Ajit Pai would in fact be doing their bidding. Now, what Verizon did was randomly impose a cap on streaming quality and then three months later, they told customers, hey, you can remove this cap and get high-quality video if you pay an extra $10 per month. Now, they wouldn't have gotten away with this if the FCC wasn't trying to repeal net neutrality. But they did, and the FCC did repeal net neutrality, and now we see plans from AT&T that are even worse than the Verizon plan. So this is, this is what we're dealing with. And not to mention, AT&T has been exposed recently for having really fraudulent sales tactics that they encourage their sales team to do to basically lie to customers, and now they're violating net neutrality. So I can't help but ask the question, when opponents to net neutrality said that proponents like myself in favor of net neutrality were being alarmist, Ajit Pai said this as well, now that they're already violating net neutrality, are you going to come out and apologize and admit that you were wrong? We told you this type of stuff would happen. And not even a month later, they're already doing what we said they would do. And if this is what we have to look forward to just a month after having no net neutrality, again, imagine what the internet will look like five years from now or 10 years from now. The prospect of an internet without net neutrality is utterly horrifying. And the longer we go without net neutrality, the more likely it'll stay that way because these companies will have the edge. They'll just have to defend a policy that Ajit Pai enacted. And when, you know, there's a new administration that takes office and a new FCC chair that inevitably takes the place of Ajit Pai, they can say, well, look, I mean, we don't want to, we don't want to you know, tip over the apple cart. We don't want to change anything. This is the way it's been now for a while, so we might as well leave it. So it's going to be harder to get back net neutrality the longer that we don't have it. So this is just disgusting. If you are a customer of AT&T, I would advise you to call and let them know how you feel. Call them and tell them that this is not acceptable. Any company that violates net neutrality should be shamed. And again, when you call and you talk to someone at a call center, you're just going to talk to a minimum wage worker. So don't yell at them, but simply tell them politely that you don't approve of the plan that they're rolling out because it violates the principle of net neutrality. And they'll just make a note of it. And sure, that's probably going to fall on deaf ears, but you can never allow your voice to be silenced. It's not acceptable. 
So this is incredibly disgusting. And again, any time something like this happens, we have to point it out and we have to let Ajit Pai know this is unacceptable and this is exactly what we said would be happening. And Ajit Pai knew that this would be the case because, you know, these violations of net neutrality, they've happened before. I mean, <laughs> the reason why net neutrality protections were necessary in the first place were was because these companies were violating net neutrality. I mean, Netflix was being uh, throttled by Comcast. So, um, you know, it, this is really disappointing, but we, we can never stop fighting back because it, this, is, this is the internet. And it's not just, you know, the internet and memes at stake. This is democracy. I mean, we organize on the internet. We gain access to news and information on the internet. It's become an integral part of our life, so we can't just allow them to destroy it and get away with it. The internet has been under attack in America now for years, but if you think the fight for freedom on the internet, or really the fight to maintain freedom on the internet, is unique to the United States, you'd be mistaken, because currently in the EU, there's a new law that internet activists there are currently fighting that would actually maybe kill memes, and that's not hyperbole, that's actually what might result if this law is codified. As Josh K. Elliott of Global News reports, EU lawmakers may inadvertently destroy the internet's robust meme culture with a proposed law designed to fight online piracy. One article in the legislation would force online platforms such as Google, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter to automatically censor copyrighted content uploaded by anyone who isn't licensed to share it. Activists say the law will effectively kill the text and photo jokes known as memes, which often feature images from copyrighted TV shows and movies. The law would also have a profound impact on sharing of fan art, video game streaming, movie trailer reactions, and a wide range of pop culture-focused blogs created by users within Europe and beyond in countries such as the U.S. and Canada. The copyright directive legislation is primarily designed to take aim at online piracy, but two articles in the proposal have stoked outrage online. Under the potentially meme-killing Article 13, internet platforms would be responsible for automatically censoring and removing any unlicensed content uploaded by users, including videos, photos, source code, or music. The internet platform would be legally responsible for any breaches, meaning the everyday user, i.e. you, wouldn't be charged for posting a meme. You would just be censored from doing so altogether. Now, this isn't law just yet. So if you live in the EU, then there is still time to resist this, but it did recently clear some hurdles. It did pass. Um, it was approved by legal affairs committee. So it's a step closer to being law in the EU. Now, if you're in America, here's why you should care about this. Do you honestly think that if this passes in the EU, lawmakers here wouldn't be inclined to do the same thing? Of course they would. In fact, when we were talking about net neutrality last year, there were people who were advocates of an open internet in the EU saying, please, for the love of God, America, don't do this because I know that our country in Europe is going to want to do the same thing. So, I mean, also, this could potentially, I mean, I'm speculating, this could affect America because if these companies like Google and Facebook are going to be worried about being prosecuted in the EU, then it might be easier for them to have a policy that's uniform around the world, so they might just make sure that they remove copyrighted content altogether. Not just in the EU.
The internet is under attack right now. It's under attack. It's not just authoritarian regimes who are clamping down on the internet. It is democracies. It's Europe. It's America who are, for whatever reason, doing everything in their power to kill freedom on the internet. And it's just, it's so outrageous. Lawmakers around the world are doing everything they can to ruin the internet. And it's just absurd. And I think that, you know, when PewDiePie was talking about this, he made a really great point. When was the last time a government anywhere really proposed the law that we didn't have to fight for our lives to defeat because it was so fucked up and draconian? I honestly, I can't remember. It's not like government is passing laws that benefit the people, even though they're public servants, they're elected by the people, their paychecks are paid for with tax dollars. Everything they do now, everything, specifically when it comes to the internet, it's almost always negative. They're doing things to ruin internet freedom and make the internet a less free place. Look, you have to fight this if you live in the EU, and people in America should also be speaking out against this, because the internet really is the last bastion of freedom in the world at this point. We use the internet to obtain information about politics. We use the internet to organize politically. We use the internet for business. The internet is fundamental to the existence of the modern human being. And they're trying to destroy it. Lawmakers everywhere. So they've got to defeat this. This is very scary. The implications of this law, it's, it's honestly terrifying. It's very Orwellian. So obviously, this was a fantastic night to be a progressive. As you all know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated corporate Democrat Joe Crowley by 57 to 42. Great news. Um, but there were other victories actually, um, that I, I can't not talk about. So we'll get to the bad news first of all. So when it comes to the race between Chelsea Manning and corporate Democrat Ben Cardin, she was unfortunately defeated by Ben Cardin. Now I will say this, Chelsea Manning is someone who is incredibly courageous and lately, you know, um, she did post a tweet on social media that was, that was really concerning to a lot of us. Maybe that, you know, she was in bad mental health and feeling depressed and maybe was considering harming herself. Thankfully, her friends did say that, you know, um, they're with her currently. So, um, I'm just glad that Chelsea Manning is okay. So, um, look, Ben Cardin is someone who is a corporate Democrat who's been, in Congress for a very long time, so this was a difficult race. So thank you to Chelsea for running because she had a very progressive platform, Medicare for All, Universal Basic Income. So that one sucked. I, I wish she would have won, but the fact that she ran, she still ran an inspiring campaign after all she's been through. The fact that she even considered running is amazing. So, you know, Chelsea, we still love you no matter what. Now, another defeat was Levi Tilleman. He lost to corporate Democrat Jason Crow, uh, 66 to 33%. Now, if you'll remember correctly, Levi Tilleman is the individual that Steny Hoyer tried to bully out of the race in favor of Jason Crow, who was the corporate Democrat in this instance. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, Levi Tilleman lost. It would have been great if he won because that would have sent the establishment another huge message, but I've got more. Now, the last bit of um, bad news with regard to... Actually, there's two more. Two more defeats that are kind of difficult is Ian Golden, another progressive, was actually defeated by um, Max Pia, who won. And then Dylan Radigan and Patrick Nelson, 
Uh, both progressives, Dylan Radigan, former MSNBC host, defeated by Tidra Cobb. Dylan Radigan was a progressive in this race, um, as was Patrick Nelson, as far as I know. Um, so those are the losses. And the final loss I'll talk about is um, technically a win. Mitt Romney won his primary by like 70%. And that's a loss for all of us. A victory for Mitt Romney is a, a lose for America. So uh, <laughs> with that being said, that's the bad news. But there's so much good news tonight. This this was such a huge night for progressives. So Emily Sirota, a progressive running in Colorado, wife of progressive journalist David Sirota, won her primary with 53% of the vote approximately. She's another progressive Democrat, and this is a huge, huge victory. Additionally, Jamie Raskin, a progressive Democrat already in Congress, won his primary. He's not perfect, but he is still a pretty progressive Democrat. He supports Medicare for all, so he did win his primary. So that is good news. And the last bit of good news, which really is huge, Ben Jealous beat his corporate Democrat opponent who had the full backing of the establishment. Baker was endorsed by Martin O'Malley and pretty much everyone in Maryland politics. Ben Jealous defeated him 39 to 29. So in total, we had four really big wins tonight. Emily Sirota, Jamie Raskin, and then the gigantic wins, which were really pretty big upsets, were um, Ben Jealous and, of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Let me make sure I'm not missing anyone. Um, yeah, so this was such a great night to be progressive. They've been dismissing us, saying, oh, you guys don't know how to win elections. You can't win. Well, look at what we just did. We just won four progressive primaries. We outflanked Democrats from the left, and we won, taking no corporate money. It's, this is remarkable. It's a really great night to be a progressive. So um, I want you all to really celebrate this victory because we, we've we had some shitty weeks. You know, we um, we saw Paula Jean Swearingen defeated, Amy Valela defeated, Democrats defeated that were very progressive that I, I really believed in. So now this is what I would encourage you guys to do. We have to help Cori Bush. She's another uh, progressive Democrat She's the next one who has a primary in August. Um, I don't know if there's any others. Odds are I'm missing some of them. Cori Bush is the next person we've all got to go to bat for because if she were to win her primary, that would also be great. So look, you should be ecstatic if you're a progressive. This is, this is all around a great night for us. So it's been a couple of hours since we learned that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated corrupt corporate Democrat Joe Crowley. And really, the establishment, you can tell, is speechless. Um, so in this video, I do want to get to the reactions. But first, my favorite video of the night is this video of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez reacting to the news that she defeated Joe Crowley. I mean, that is just really... That's so heartwarming right there. I really, really like this video. Um, now, what did Joe Crowley do? He decided, you know, <laughs> in his concession speech to sing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a song. Literally. Yeah, so that happened. 
So um, <laughs> say what you will about that. But my favorite part about this news is that Donald Trump actually tweeted about this victory for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He didn't mention her by name, but he did basically say that Joe Crowley was mean to him and he's glad that he lost. But I mean, buddy, if you thought that Joe Crowley was mean to you, wait until you get a true progressive in that seat. You haven't seen anything yet. Progressives aren't pushovers. We don't take your bullshit policies lying down. We actually fight back. So give it a couple of months. I think that Trump will probably be begging for Joe Crowley to return to Congress. Now, we're also seeing some reaction from the media, which I think are just fascinating. I mean, watching some of these clips are surreal. That's what I said on Twitter, because they're now finally having conversations about progressive momentum that they should have been having years ago. And this is one clip that really stood out uh, to me with Don Lemon and a strategist. This is a big upset here. What's going on? This is a huge upset. Nobody thought that Joe Crowley was going down. Yes, there was some you know, noise on the left that there was going to be a real challenge. The Intercept really got behind Joe Crowley's progressive challenger. But there was no sense that this was going on. But this is not an isolated incident. In the 9th District of New York, Yvette Clark is in a lot of trouble tonight. In Maryland, Governor Ben Jealous, who's the left-wing candidate in that race, is doing particularly well. So it does seem if there was some argument before tonight that there wasn't a lot of energy on the progressive side of the Democratic Party, there certainly was this evening. Mm -hmm. So let's talk, about, let's talk about her a little bit more, okay, Harry? Because uh, she is running, obviously, to his left, right? Correct. Uh, to Crowley's left. It says, even with universal health care, a federal job jobs guarantee and the abolition of ICE uh, headlining her demands. Crowley has a formidable um, liberal record to lean on. So she is young. She is young. But? She is young. She's also a minority candidate in a district that is now majority minority. And she's a woman in the year of the woman. But to me, it's amazing that Joe Crowley really didn't have a firing offense, right? He was a very liberal congressman, but he wasn't liberal enough. Yeah. What does this say, you about, say to you about this? Because when I saw you just before the show, you said, this is big. We were paying attention to what, what happened in Staten Island, especially because of Grimm and Grimm going to jail and all of that. Should we be, same question I asked Chris just moments ago, should we be paying more attention, you think, to Democratic primaries instead of so much focus on the Republicans? A absolutely. I mean, look, Democrats have a decent shot at taking control in November, but more than just for this year, I think it's a preview of the 2020 primary season, the presidential race, and there could be a lot of energy on the left, and it does seem to me that you just can't be against Trump. You have to stand for something, at least in the primaries tonight. He ranks fourth among House Democrats, and it was said that he could take over for Nancy Pelosi? I exactly. He definitely could have given how much trouble she is. And remember, Eric Cantor lost his primary about four years ago tonight. This is that. What that was on the Republican side, this is on the Democratic side. It's huge. So by and large, this was such a huge monumental victory for progressives. And I still am honestly in disbelief um, that that it happened. So we're going to continue to see the world react and see the Democratic Party establishment react. But understand They've been shaken to their core right now. They have no idea how to process this or handle this. I mean, everyone disregarded Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It was seen as a long-shot campaign, and we all knew that she was the underdog. But now you see people like Kathy Griffin tweeting about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, sharing articles about her so you learn more about her. You see Joanne Reed admitting that, you know, now they're going to have to do their homework. How about this? How about next time there's a progressive challenging an incumbent Democrat that you dismiss as a long shot? Maybe give them a chance. Give them some media coverage.
So that way you're not inadvertently tipping the scales in favor of the corporate Democrat. That's your job as a journalist. So everyone in the country is going to learn Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's name now that she won. But what they're also going to learn is that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a movement. She has an army. I am just so thrilled. So again, congratulations to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I just wanted to share some of the, you know, the uh, initial reactions to her huge political upset. This this is a gigantic victory, and this this really gives progressives the credibility that they deserve, and it puts us on a new level, really. When Republicans proposed trillions of dollars in tax cuts for the rich, what did we all predict would happen soon after? We all predicted that they would respond to the budget crisis that they created by proposing cuts to social safety net programs. And can you guess what ended up happening? Exactly what we said would happen because they're now proposing cuts to social safety net programs of course to finance tax cuts for their rich donors so according to erica werner of the washington post house republicans released a proposal tuesday that would balance the budget in nine years but only by making large cuts to entitlement programs including medicare that president trump vowed not to touch the house budget committee is aiming to pass the blueprint this week but that may be as far as it goes this midterm election year it is not clear that GOP leaders will put the document on the House floor for a vote, and even if it were to pass the House, the budget would have little impact on actual spending levels. Nonetheless, the budget serves as an expression of the Republicans' priorities at a time of rapidly rising deficits and debt. Although the nation's growing indebtedness has been exacerbated by the GOP's own policy decisions, including the new tax law, which most analyses say will add at least a trillion dollars to the debt, Republicans on the Budget Committee said they felt the responsibility to put the nation on a sounder fiscal trajectory. The time is now for Congress to step up and confront the biggest budget challenge to our society, said House Budget Chairman Steve Womack. So really, I don't have much to say about this because I think that this article and their action here really speaks for itself. This is trickle-down economics 101. You cut taxes for the rich, and to pay for those tax cuts... You cut social safety net programs that the poor depends on. Republicans are an absolute disgrace. They do not represent normal Americans. And the fact that they even have a chance of winning any elections is just absurd. And, you know, to compound the absurdity of this issue, they're in control of everything. They are in control of everything. When they are openly saying they want to cut Medicare and Medicaid, programs that we depend on. Why? So their rich donors can have more tax cuts. And look, it's not just about their donors. People like Paul Ryan, he's going to be retiring soon. He's going to do great. He's going to personally benefit from the tax cuts he just voted on. This is what they do. Isn't that nice? You get an office and you construct policies that you personally benefit from and then you leave. And you do that all while virtue signaling and claiming that, you know, we're doing this because we care about the economy. No, you care about your own pocketbook. And we can see that. It's very evident. You're, you're very transparent, Paul Ryan and House Republicans. So look, that's all I'll say about this. I just wanted to at least show you what they're considering because this isn't, this isn't surprising. This isn't surprising at all. We all knew that they would do this. In fact, it wasn't even a month 
after, I think, when uh, they passed the Trump tax cuts that Paul Ryan was already saying, we've got to cut social safety net programs. So, I mean, they don't care about the optics. There's no such thing as bad PR for Republicans. They just do not care. They're shameless. So, I mean, this party has to collapse. I'm not I'm not just talking about we have to defeat Republicans. The Republican Party needs to collapse. All Republicans need to be out of a job. Democrats should be the new de facto right-wing party. Progressives should form their own party and take over as, you know, the new de facto left-wing party. This party is... They're deranged. They're extremist. They don't belong in American politics. They don't. Where when you look at policies, Americans are progressive. What they're doing is just anti-American, and they don't care that it looks disgustingly greedy and corrupt, what they're doing. They're shameless. This is what Republicans are. This is what modern Republicans represent. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Um, I really appreciate you guys. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. I will be at the Jimmy Dore Show live in Portland, Oregon this week at the Alberta Rose Theater. I hope to see you guys there. It's going to be a blast. And certainly, we will be celebrating after these progressive victories I feel so happy and hopeful right now, and I hope you guys feel the same. It's been a pretty sad and depressing episode up until we got to the election portion. So look, I'll see you all next week. Take care.